Amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to open to the book, the letter of Titus, Titus chapter 1. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. Uh, this greeting, um, this salutation to you of Paul, uh, it's one of Paul's longest introductions of any of his letters. Uh, and he begins a short three chapter, 46 verse letter to a man named Titus. Um, he blends in a beautiful duet of both the Christian, uh, the Christian harmony of doctrines and deeds and belief, behavior, conduct, and creed. And in these first four verses, Paul packs a whole lot in there in these first four verses. So much teaching in such a short amount of space. And so we are going to try as best as we can to go through and to walk through all four verses. When I got the assignment about a week or two ago to preach the first four verses, I said, oh yeah, sure, no problem. Then I got to reading the four verses and I said, oh my, there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. So we may or may not get through it. I think we will get through all of it, but maybe uh, Brother Scott will come back in and clean some things up for us next week. But Titus chapter one, verses one through four, would you read with me? Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. Tonight's sermon, the title is Greetings of Grace and Peace examining the hope of our Savior's truth that leads to godliness. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful that we can gather in your house, that we can examine your word, the truth of your word. And Father, we pray that we might receive that truth from your word. And God, in receiving the truth of being knowledgeable of the truth, Father, would our lives then represent godliness? Father, might what we believe change the way we live in light of this hope of eternal life, which is promised through your word, through your son, Jesus Christ, through your very presence and character of you being a God who cannot lie. We pray, God, that you would speak to us. God, that you might grant us grace and peace as you greet us here tonight. It's your name we do pray. Amen. Um, who, lo- this is an odd, odd question to start off a sermon with, but who loves shopping for a used car? Any hands out there? Uh, a few of you. I, I enjoy the process. I see that hand, Charlotte. Uh, I enjoy the process of shopping for a used car. I enjoy the game. I enjoy, I just love cars to begin with. So uh, the thought of getting a new one, it excites me. I'm about to have the very best car you could possibly have in about six months. That's a paid off car, right? And so hopefully we'll drive that thing for a little bit longer and then I'll get to have some fun and go shopping for a used car. But when you go through the process of buying a used car, I mean, you've really got to examine it closely, right? You've got to look for things. The salesman, uh, he's doing his job. He's got a job to do, and you're the, the buyer. You're, you've got a job to do as well, and make sure that you're not going to buy a lemon, right? You know what a lemon is. It's a car that's going to tear down or break down on you, like maybe as soon as you leave the lot. So you really want to look over it closely. And when I go shopping for a car, I learned from my dad. My dad would go to, we, we would 
come on, son, let's go, let's go look at cars. I'm like, all right, are we buying it? I don't know. We could. We, my dad's been notorious for buying a car and taking it home. But uh, we would go and we would look, and I've learned the game of how to just, just talk to and look over things. You've really got to look at it and see what are the things. Are they t- trying to hide something in there? Well, tonight in our passage of Scripture, um, we need to look closely at this passage, not because there's any error in it, not because there's any lies detected, but really more so that we can know the truth of God's word. And I, listen, in no way am I equating the word of God to a used car, okay? That's not at all what we are doing. So please do not misunderstand uh, where I'm going at. And I apologize in advance for some of the puns that I will use uh, with the used cars analogy, but just go with me on, on why we do this. We, we need to examine this text. Again, not because there is any error within it, but because there is a lot here to look over. And we don't want to miss anything. In our text tonight, we're not purchasing a used car, but there is a lot to examine and to look over to see the truth about identity, salvation, godliness, God preaching, and our faith. So we are examining, we are looking over the hope of our Savior's truth that leads to godliness. Where Titus is at, he is planning a church an island called Crete. Titus was assigned here to, to Crete, and it was a beautiful island. However, the culture of which Titus finds himself church planting was really kind of like planting a church with the cast of the Pirates of the Caribbean. It was uh, a bunch of liars and drunkards. It was very much like a Las Vegas-style land full of immoral things. And it was, Crete was an island in, in the Mediterranean, was a hub of piracy, Historians say that the people there stayed drunk and lying was celebrated. It was a celebrated art form, so much so in the Greek language, a slang for lying was to crete. Stop creting, or you just creted. You are lying. Stop creting. So, so we have this, this picture, this contrast of truth, of a God who does not lie, that Paul says, with the people who are notorious liars, who, who really go against the truth. And so what Paul says in this opening, this greeting to Titus, are some, there's some deep truth here that we need to unpack and we need to examine closely. Paul says later in verse 12 that these Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. So Paul is intentional with his words that he chooses here in this greeting of grace and peace to Titus. It's intentional for Titus to understand the importance of truth. And it's it's, uh, important for us as well to understand the importance of truth because truth is transforming. When we fail, it's because we have departed from truth, either in belief or practice. Truth leads to godliness. And here in this greeting of grace and peace, we can examine the hope of our Savior's truth that leads to godliness. So let's look over the text well and examine this greeting of grace and peace. So first, let's notice and let's look at it. Let's examine the truth about uh, Paul's identity, but also our, our identity as well. Paul says, and here are these first few words, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul's identity, our identity, Paul says here that he is a slave of God. Normally in Paul's letters, he writes that he is a slave of Christ. 
for Paul, there, there really was no difference. Jesus, or a slave of Christ or a slave of God, he, he was God's slave, bought and paid for by the precious blood of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. He was no longer his own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He was a slave of God. Paul humbled himself, gave him that title of a slave of God. Paul was humbled by the gospel. We'll talk a little bit more about Paul's previous life, but Paul was absolutely humbled by the gospel, humbled by who God is, that God sought him out on his road to Damascus. God saw him in his sinfulness, and God chose and called him out, and the gospel changed him forever, and it humbled him, and it should humble us as well, and we should be humble servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Paul was humble, and so should we. Next, we see that Paul uh, was sent. Paul was an apostle. He called, Paul calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, apostle is both technical and a general term in Scripture. Technically, capital A, apostle, refers to the original 12 disciples who were eyewitnesses of the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Now, we know that Paul was not one of the original 12. However, Paul technically met the criteria of the original 12 because Paul could have replaced that open spot that was vacated by Judas because Paul encountered the risen Christ and was commissioned by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. So Paul could have used the capital A there when talking about himself as being a servant of God and an apostle, but he doesn't. He uses a lowercase and just the, the general sense of being one who was sent out. Why does he do it? Is it, a, is it an act of humility? Maybe, maybe not. He doesn't say so specifically in the text. So we should really draw that out from there, but just make an observation that Paul could have and did meet the criteria of the original 12. But in, in just general sense, he is an apostle. He is saying, I am a humble servant of God and I am sent out. I'm an apostle who is sent out to tell others about this gospel. And we, if you're a believer in Christ, we too are servants of God. We are apostles who are sent out. We talked a little bit about that this morning, did we not? We are sent out to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We are sent ones as those who go on behalf of Jesus Christ. Now let's look closely. Let's examine the truth about salvation. Paul was selected. We mentioned this earlier. Paul uh, was, God chose him. God literally struck him down, stopped him in his tracks, and called him out to serve him. Paul believed, he says here, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, Paul had writes about election. Paul writes about predestination. And in some of his other books, Paul believed that God elected and predestined people to be saved. After all, we consider his life of who he was, that he was called out from God. But Paul also knew that though God is sovereign over all, and he is sovereign over all, Brother Scott has talked about his incommunicable attributes of God, that he's so big, he's sovereign over all things. There's nothing that God, our God does not know. He's never been surprised by anything. So it should not surprise us that God would then know all of who would trust in him for salvation. Paul knows this, but he also knows that people still have a choice, a free will, responsibility to believe the gospel. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, once said of this regarding this topic, he saves man by grace, and if men perish, they perish justly by their own fault. 
How, says someone, do you reconcile these two doctrines? My dear brethren, I never reconcile two friends, never. These two doctrines are friends with one another, for they are both in God's word, and I shall not attempt to reconcile them, and neither should we. Charles Spurgeon saying these two things, these two doctrines of election, predestined, but that also um, the free will of man's choice to, to choose to accept the gift of salvation, they're, they're clearly stated in the Bible, and so we shouldn't try and push them together when they're already friendly. They, they, they work very well together. I remember being in college and people get in so much rivalry, kind of like the rivalry over like Ford versus Chevy, those kind of used cars. There's your first pun for the night, right? Um, people getting in all kind of arguments. Well, does God already knows. Yeah, but we still have free will and choice over this. Paul says, hey, it's both. It's a both and kind of deal that we're dealing with here. And we don't need to fuss and argue that God uh, has placed it here so that we might go. It's for the sake of all who would believe. We go and we live our lives and we declare the greatness of God. Paul was passionate about missions. He was passionate about evangelism. And we should also be passionate about missions and evangelism. It's our purpose, or as Paul put it in hearing these words, for the sake of the faith, for the sake of the faith. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, that means those who will be saved, those who will accept God's gift for the knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness. The next thing let's look at, this next truth about godliness. If you are saved, that means you have a full knowledge of the truth, that the knowledge of truth will lead to a new life of godliness. The gospel should lead to godliness. In other words, what I believe will affect how I live. What you believe will affect how you live and how you live will demonstrate what you believe, right? If you really believe something, that'll change how you live. If I really believe that this is God's word, that in it is, is, the, is the, um, the inspired word of God, that the Holy Spirit inspired men to write it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and then it's good for me that in it is truth and it's infallible without error. And so everything that is written within these words, I should believe it and then live it out in that truth. And Paul says, if you have this knowledge of truth, if you are saved, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, you have this knowledge of truth, then it affects how you live. It accords with godliness, as he says. It should affect how you live because what you believe will affect how you live, just as the condition of a car will affect its performance, right? Uh, we need to have a well-maintained spiritual engine, if you will. Does that make sense? Uh, sorry for the pun. Again there, we, we need to, to have a well-maintained spiritual engine. We need to be so filled with God's truth that it affects how we live. It affects godliness in our life. And to not have knowledge of God's word, to not be dwelling on God's word, well, what's the performance going to be? It's going to be one of a not very godly life. In fact, it may mirror that of some of what Titus finds himself dealing with the Cretans. One of the problems Titus was facing with the people of Crete was a lack of godliness, bad doctrine as a result of lies and false truth. We are to live godly lives. And Paul is saying, as a servant of God, his purpose is to seek both the salvation of the lost and also to grow in godliness. 
And when we live out the truth of the gospel in our lives, others will take notice. Because when we examine the hope of our Savior's truth, it will lead to godliness. This is in the text here tonight, that we, we look at our, the truth of who God is, and that the truth is only found in our Savior, and that should lead accords with, with godliness. Paul drew a clear distinction between genuine gospel and the teachings of false leaders. Any theology or philosophy must be practical, applying to our our real world. Our only truth aligns with life, and at some point, all other approaches will fall short. Whenever the Christian struggles come, we, we often it's often because we deviate either from truth in either belief or practice. Whenever troubles arise in our lives as believers in Christ, it's either because we are not truly trusting in the truth of God's word or we're not uh, acting it out. And, and either one of those has to deal with a lack of trusting in the knowledge of the truth of who God is and what his, sa- his word says. And one of the most damaging things you could do to the kingdom of God is to profess Christianity but never practically live it out. The godliness part. Have the truth, the knowledge of truth, but never accord with godliness, as Paul says. Brennan Manning says this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today are Christians who acknowledge Jesus Christ with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. If you are saved, as Paul says, if you are a servant of God, one who is sent out according to Jesus Christ for the sake of others who have not yet responded to the gospel, that's what he says, for, the, for their sake, you should live your life in such a way that points people to Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? Through godly living, not through hypocrisy. And I would dare say if, that's, if you find yourself living in hypocrisy, it's maybe because you've never truly believed in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've accepted some form of cultural Christianity which says, come to church on Sunday and Wednesday when it's convenient for, for you, drop some money in the offering box and make sure you're on a roll somewhere and you'll be good to go when it's your time to leave this world. And that is not a true definition of Christianity. That is not a definition of Christianity that will lead to godly living. Right knowledge, right truth, and understanding of God's word will result in godly living, Paul says. And we too, we should examine this truth and see, is that true within my life? For your sake, and also for the sake of others who have not yet responded to the truth of the gospel. And Paul urges Titus with this truth. J.D. Greer says, God's purpose in the gospel is to create for himself a loving, a God-loving and God-like people. That's what godliness means, God-like people. The point of the gospel is that when God saved us, he saved us for himself. We are God-like people. We go and declare his greatness. That was just verse one. Just verse one. Now let's look at verses two and three. Let's look over the truth about hope. Hope does not mean wishing, right? Whenever I'm looking for a, a new car, a new to, me, a new, to, new to me car, right? New to, new to you car, a used car, I'm hoping uh, that I'm not buying one of those lemons. I'm hoping I'm getting a good car. I'm, I, I mean, I've looked over, I've, I've examined it, and I'm hoping that this car is going to last the duration of the loan of which I've applied to, to pay for this car. 
I'm hoping. We don't have that sense of hope when it comes to the gospel, amen? We don't have to have that kind of wishful hoping, wishful thinking when it comes to eternal life. We do not wish for eternal life as if there's some possibility that God will let us down because this is the God who, as Paul says, does not lie. When Paul says the hope, that means the promise of God. Paul assures us of this hope two ways. He assures us of this hope, this promise of God, through the witness of God, that's his character of who he is, and through his word. Notice the flow here of what Paul says. Paul says, the saving faith of those who belong to God leads to a knowledge of the truth, which will lead to godliness, all of which rests on the hope of eternal life in a God who cannot lie. Everything, the whole reason why we exist, the church exists, the whole reason why we gather together on Sundays, Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, and Wednesday, the whole reason why we obey this book is we are resting our complete hope and confidence on a God who does not lie. Because if he could lie, he would cease to be God. And if he could lie, he would cease to be good. And therefore, it would not be for our good. So we are basing everything on this God who cannot lie. He never lies. Never lies. Sometimes a salesman will lie to you. Just, they're trying to make a profit. But God has no need to lie. He has no need to lie because he knows he is the best thing for us. He's the best thing for you. He's the best thing for your neighbor, for your friend, for your family, for your coworker. There is no reason to lie because he's a God who cannot lie. Sometimes when you are purchasing a car, you, you ask him for the, the Carfax. So you can kind of just, just check it out. I just kind of make sure. I, I see what you're saying. I like to see the Carfax. See, has there been any kind of documented of wrecks that, that this vehicle has been in? Any kind of major recalls? This is God's report. This is God's witness. This is his character that he's a God who does not lie. This is the proof that we can trust and hope in that who he says he is true and what he says he will do, he will do. This is his witness, his character. This is what we rest everything on, that God is a God who does not lie. God is incapable of lying. And if he is incapable of lying, then we can place our complete hope and trust in him. Amen. Aren't you thankful for that? And that gives us confidence. Dr. Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary says this, hope is a confident certainty and expectation of something that is not yet ours, but will be. Eternal life is the very life of God. It is both a quantity of life, that's forever, and a quality of life. That's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So just as God uh, brought forth the world by the spoken word, so he confirms the future by a world of promise. Whatever God says must happen since he designs reality. God, by his very nature, remains reliable and trustworthy. What he says must be true. This is a, a lifetime warranty that will never run out or expire. I told you there'd be several puns tonight. There, there are no conditional clauses and nothing you do will ever void that warranty because it is secured in God himself. Don't, don't miss this. Despite my cheesy puns, don't miss this. Now, there is nothing that we can do that would make God change his mind. There is no sin too great that you and I can commit that God would say, mm, well, I'm going to have to take that back. You no longer get that lifetime warranty. You no longer get heaven because that was pretty bad what you did. 
God's promises are true because he is a God who cannot lie. So when he says that all of your sins are covered, they're all covered. He'll never take a bat. He'll never avoid that. And it's not based on anything that we can do. It's based on everything of what has been done for us through Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary through the finished blood of the Lamb. It's not based on you or on me. It's based on God's promise of who he says he is. And he is a God who does not lie. So Paul says this, that this hope was promised before the beginning of time. So this wonderful truth about the hope of eternal life extends both into eternity past and to eternity future. From Paul's perspective, Christianity is not a a new religion apart from Judaism. A theology of eternal life existed, Paul says, before Genesis 1-1. Salvation through Jesus Christ was no afterthought. God thought it up before the beginning of time. Jesus has always been God's plan A, and he planned it down to the last detail a long time ago. Now let's, let's examine the hope through his word. The eternal promises of eternal life from God, who cannot lie, stepped into history as the word of God. We see that in verse, uh, verse 3, at the proper time manifested in his word stepped into history as the word of God, made known through preaching, which has been entrusted to Paul and to Titus and now to us. By the commandment, who commanded us? Who does he say? By the command of God, our Savior. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. Jesus stepped in at just the right time to let us know of who God is. God placed his eternal plan of salvation in the hands of Jesus. He came, he was born of a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, and proclaimed the truth about who he was, of who God is. And then he ascended, went back to heaven. He assigned us with the task of going and telling and proclaiming and preaching the gospel to all, to cross over all barriers, as we talked about this morning, to go to all people of all nations, telling them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are telling them about the free get the salvation that's available to all who would accept it. We preach the gospel. You may think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm no preacher. Uh, I, that's, that's not me. I, I'm, I'm no preacher. I mean, that's, that's, that's for you all to get up on the, the stage from the pulpit to do. Well, may I remind you that one of the greatest sermons is your testimony of your life. After all, Paul says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth with the courts to godliness. See, when, when we examine the hope of our Savior, it leads to godliness. Your life is a sermon. You are preaching something with your life. That's either going to be preaching a sermon that, that does lead to godliness, that is going to lead for the sake of those who have not yet responded in the faith of Jesus Christ. It's either going to lead them towards Jesus or it's going to lead them away from Jesus. But you are preaching a sermon with your life. Or some of you might say, well, yeah, but other people do a better job at telling others about Jesus than me. So I'll just let them do the telling. I'll let them do the preaching. Can I, can I remind you, this was something that was super impactful and encouraging to me as a, as a young preacher in seminary. Some may preach the gospel better than you. That's true. Some may preach the gospel better 
than you. But no one can preach a better gospel than you. It's the same message. It's the same power of God for salvation, for the Jews and the Gentiles, for all. It's the same message. It's powerful. No one can preach a better gospel. And we must share and preach the good news to everyone. We have that responsibility as apostles, as servants of God, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth, which accords with God. And we go out and we preach the word. We proclaim the word, the gospel, wherever we go. Finally, let's examine, let's look over. We've made it to verse four. The truth about our faith. The truth about our faith. This letter we read, it, it's to Titus. We, we see it here in this, this verse four. To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and Titus was a Gentile. More than likely, both of his parents were Gentiles. And in, in this respect, he differed from Timothy, which we just finished, whose mother was Jewish. Timothy would serve as a preacher to the circumcision, but Titus would be a man after Paul's heart, a preacher to the Gentiles. Paul was a spiritual father to Titus. And Titus, like Paul, was to preach the same message that Paul preached. The same message that we are to preach today. The methods may change, but the message does not. It is timeless. As we just read from the beginning of time, this has been God's plan A. And so Paul concludes his greetings with this final word of encouragement of grace and peace. True grace and peace. True grace and peace can be known only in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can look for, for peace and grace in other places of life, but you will not find true grace and peace apart from Jesus Christ. And Paul desired that Titus experience these treasures of grace and peace. And we should want grace and peace to others as well. To have, to receive, and to walk in, and to be embraced with God's grace, and to have peace of knowing him as our Savior. Because when we examine this, when we look over and when we study and we see the truth of who he is, the truth of our Savior, that changes how we live as we walk in grace and peace. Paul further writes, Christ Jesus, our Savior. The title Savior appears 12 times in the New Testament. And here in Titus, in these three chapters, these 46 verses, it appears six times our Savior. Six of those here in Titus. Perhaps there was some need in Crete for Paul to specify that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is our Savior. I don't know exactly why, but sometimes in the Bible we find the Lord Jesus Christ called a Savior. For example, today, a Savior who is Christ the Lord was born for you in the city of David. Jesus is also called the Savior. He is the Savior of all people, especially of believers. Then, then also, he, he is my Savior. As Mary saying, my spirit have rejoiced greatly in God, my Savior. But here, in these verses, in some respects, is a superior sweetness in this plural pronoun, our Savior. You see, it's hard to be selfish when it's ours. 
ours. It's hard to be selfish, and in doing so, we come to feel an intense delight in this truth, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior of many more besides ourselves. Our Savior binds us together with people from all walks of life, with people who don't look like us, with people who don't live in the area where we live, or people who don't think like us. He is his, our Savior. We have a common bond, a common obligation that knits us together in love. My Savior, your Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we rejoice in our Savior, and we are one in him. And so that's why we can go all over the world. I, I loved getting to go to Cuba. Their Savior is my Savior. He's, he's our Savior. Wherever you go around the world, you find Christians. Christianity is not just here in America. It's all around the world. He's our Savior together. It's not just here in Paducah, Kentucky. Our Savior is the same Savior all across the world. And that binds us together with one purpose and one common goal. As we, as servants of God, as apostles, as sent out of Jesus Christ for the sake of those who do not know Jesus yet, for their knowledge of truth, which will lead to godliness, we go and we declare that our Savior, Savior's truth. Our Savior gives true grace and peace. That you will never find grace. You will never find peace apart from our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in that truth that we look at, that we examine, that leads to godliness. Remember, what you believe changes how you live. When we recognize that all kinds of people need Jesus. This message, I was listening to Brother Scott preach this morning, like, well, that's, that's kind of with my notes for tonight. It's by no accident. Don't, there, there are no coincidences with God. God wants us to know, church, that Jesus is for all. And he has commissioned us to go and to share the truth with all. But it's our choice if we will go and share. And when we recognize that my sin is just as guilty as your sin. And anyone that you can think of who is a bad sinner, we're equal. We are all equal within the need of having a Savior, with someone who can cleanse us, with someone who can give us grace and give us peace because we can't earn it on our own. When you have that knowledge of truth, that changes your perspective, that sanctifies you, and that changes the way you live. When you truly believe it, it will change the way you live. So for the sake of the faith of God's elect, we can live godly lives that goes and proclaims and preaches the word of God to people of which God has purposely placed in your life, which is an orchestration of events that were planned before the beginning of time, as Paul says. And in echoes of Esther, I, I, I hear perhaps God has placed you where you're at for such a time as this. You are a servant of God. You are sent out for the sake of those who have yet to place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And if you are a child of God, you have the knowledge of truth, and that will change the way you live, living godliness. And in doing so, you will preach, you will tell people with your life and with your words of the greatness of God, because of the greatness of this God who gives grace and peace to all who will accept it. And I pray that you will take this to heart.
Sounds good? Do you want to take it home with you? That's the last pun for the night. I hope you will take it home tonight. And I hope more than just taking it home, I lied, there's another pun. I hope more than just taking it home, you will go and show it off. You'll show off Jesus everywhere. Because there is no one greater than Jesus. There is no message greater than Jesus. And he gives us the hope and the confidence because our God does not lie. He is truth, and we can trust him. Would you stand? We're going to have a time of of response. We're going to sing a song. If you need to respond in truth, maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ for your salvation, you can do so tonight. Or maybe God has just continued to work in your, your, your heart today, giving you a passion for someone that you need to go and share the gospel with. You can do so tonight. Maybe God has, has challenged you and saying, hey, your, your life, you, you say you, you trust that you know the knowledge of truth, but, but believing it, it hasn't changed the way you live. I don't know how the Lord's speaking to you, but I pray you would respond. Let's pray, and then we'll sing our hymn of invitation. Father, we we are thankful for who you are. God, we're thankful for the truth of the gospel. God, we're thankful that you are a God who does not lie. You have no reason to lie. You You are God. You are perfect. You are true. And God, we can trust in you for that. God, thank you that you who have called us to salvation, we who have responded by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, God, you have called us to to go, to be servants of you, to be apostles sent out to proclaim the truth of your son, Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that in doing so, we we would look at our lives. God, that you would point out ways in our life in which we are preaching a, a message that is, that is counter to the gospel. God, if there's anything in our life that is leading people away, God, would you show us? Would you point it out? Because, Father, we want to be sanctified. We want to be godly people. We want to be people of God who would go and proclaim how great and awesome you are. Lord, we love you, and we pray that your people would respond and share. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.